Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not. Here we go, you guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast, where we're bringing you opinion scholarship on depth psychology. We're going to continue down our uh, discussion of Ed Edinger's um, book, Ego and Archetype. Uh, this is the Jungian stuff, the depth psychology, the unconscious, all that cool shit. That's what we're going to talk about today. This is part four in our series, Return to Edinger. Um, this is the fourth and final part of the book, so I want to talk to you today um, about individuation. This is a psychological term. We've been talking about it for the last three episodes. It's very cool. Um, it has some practical components, and it has some kind of spiritual components to it, and it's difficult to separate them. So I think that's really interesting. So we're going to talk about that today. I want to remind you um, what individuation means before we jump in. I'm going to call this episode The Alchemy of Individuation. Why alchemy? So I struggle with this also. Um, Carl Jung and Jordan Peterson both um, put a great deal of emphasis on the images that came out of the alchemical sciences in the Middle Ages and all the way up to kind of... Um, you know, well, Isaac Newton, he was an alchemist. Um, it's the beginning of science, in a sense, but it was blended with spirituality, and um, the idea here is that uh, an exercise like alchemy is a similar exercise to dreaming. Active imagination, which is an exercise that Carl Jung um, invented, for lack of a better phrase, um, these are creative meditative type of experiences where you're trying to elicit images from the unconscious um, so that you can figure out what they mean, what they are, so you can so you can connect to the unconscious. Um, Jung would call that unconscious contents. Whatever they are, those are the archetypes. Whatever that means, it's a great mystery. Um, and then so, so alchemy would give... Um, Images, much like what you would see in dreams. And if you ever read any of these occult alchemical texts from the Middle Ages, um, there's all kinds of dragons and serpents and uh, homunculi and all kinds of strange images that come from alchemy. And it will remind you of things like, like crazy shit from dreams, um, like uh, religious revelations, things that you read in holy books that are nuts, like you know the book of Ezekiel or something. Um, so there's something about this al alchemical exercise that elicits these kinds of, of images that allows us an avenue to the connection to our own unconscious. And, um, you know, they're, they're 
there are dangers and treasures there. And that's sort of the whole depth psychology enterprise. So just a refresher on individuation. What do the psychologists mean when they say that? Um, individuation, it means kind of like what it sounds, to become an individual. Individuation, right? From a depth psychology perspective, they see this as the creation of the ego, the birth of the ego. And the idea is that everything uh, can everything rolls back to this unconscious unity. This is something we've called the Ouroboros before when we talk about the connections to religion, the uh, primordial God from which the creation occurred, um, the Ouroboros, you know, the egg, the great egg of creation from India and Egypt, um, the cosmic egg, that idea, um, you know, it, it opens up and the cosmos is inside. So, so everyone starts, everything starts in the same from the same origin, from the same unity, and things um, that exist, you know, on their own, individual things, they're separated from that unity to become something that stands on, on its own, that exists on its own and has existence of its own. So to become an individual is to pull yourself free from that original unity so you can stand alone as your own individual. And the psychologists see that as the ego being pulled free from the unconscious or the archetypal psyche is what Jung would call it. So we all come from this one unity. We're separated from it. And this, this is, again, individuation in a, in a nutshell. But it does, something, it does something interesting. It creates a perspective that allows you, as an ego, to turn around and look and observe and experience the thing that gave birth to you. Now, that unconscious thing that gave birth to you isn't exactly different from you, right? You came from it. It was you, what you were before you were an ego, right? It's you. But when you become an ego, suddenly you have the distance. You pull yourself free. You have the distance to turn around and see that thing that you, that you are. That self-experience, self-consciousness, an encounter with God, all of this sort of thing. So that is what individuation makes possible, and it's what the goal of individuation is. Right? It's like God became conscious. You know, the self became an ego so that it could know, so that it could be conscious and aware of what it itself is. The self-aware universe, something like that. So individuation separates you from God so that you can have an encounter with God, so you can recognize what God is or what the self is or what the unconscious is, however you want to frame that, psychologically or from a religious perspective. And people like Jung and Edinger, they say fascinating things about the psychological meaning behind these sort of religious ideas and images that we see in mythology and religion and depth psychology, the archetypes. These religious abstractions have some real psychological meaning. And people like Jordan Peterson put that, they make that clear. At least it, he made that clear for me from the biblical stories in a way that I had, and I grew up as a Christian and never understood them that way. So I'm going to try to do that for you today. We're going to, we're going to talk about religion, not, not just Christianity. We're going to bounce all over the place. Where I want to start today is with blood. Let's talk about blood. This first section I'm going to call blood sacrifice. So Ed Edinger begins like this. He says, Since primitive times, 
blood was considered to be the seat of life or, or soul. Since life ebbed away as one bled to death, the equation of blood and life was natural and inevitable. In ancient Greece, the shades of the dead in Hades, right, the ghosts in, 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 in the underworld, could be restored briefly by giving them blood to drink. Blood carried super personal connotations and was thought to belong only to God. Blood belongs exclusively to God. Hence, the ancient Hebrews were forbidden to eat blood. Priestesses of Apollo would sacrifice a lamb and taste the blood in order to commune with God and to prophesy. So they required the blood of the sacrifice. They would ingest that blood, right? The blood of Christ, right? They, they, would, they would drink the blood of the sacrifice and that would connect them to God and they would be able to speak for God. They'd be able to prophesy. And blood was thought of as an autonomous entity in a way which could call for its own revenge, right? As the blood of Abel cries from the ground in chapter 4 of Genesis, right? Cain kills Abel, and Abel's blood cries to God from, from the ground. It soaks into the earth and cries to God from the ground, right? So it's almost like blood carries the spirit of life, the spirit of God, the thing that gives life. And in the biblical tradition, that was breathed into Adam. The spirit of God, the divine logos, breathed into Adam. Right? That's what's carried in the blood. And that's why it belongs to God, because in a way, it is God. And that's the mystery of the Logos, right? In the beginning was the Word, that's the Logos. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Edinger says, understood psychologically, blood represents the life of the soul, of transpersonal origin, exceedingly precious and potent. Any effort of the ego to manipulate appropriate or destroy it for personal purposes provokes vengeance or retribution. Blood spilled requires more blood to pay the debt. It is a crime against life for which payment will be extracted. So blood, psychologically speaking, represents the life of the soul of transpersonal origin. What does that mean? The soul whatever it is that animates the body, whatever, it's, whatever it is the body incarnates that brings the body to life, this idea of a soul, a spirit. It has a transpersonal origin. Well, it, of course. Jung would say it comes from the unconscious. That's what gave birth to the ego. Um, a religious person would say that the spirit comes from God or that it is God, a little piece of God, something like that. So it has transpersonal origin. It, it, it comes from some other place, some heavenly place, some numinous place. That's not physical, that's not material, that's not conscious. It's unconscious, it's mysterious, it's numinous, something like that. He says, another feature of ancient blood symbolism is the notion that blood establishes a bond or a covenant between the divine powers and man. Pacts with a devil must be signed in blood, and blood must flow to bind a contract between God and man. Just as the blood of the sacrificial animals poured out by Moses cemented the old bond between God and Israel, 
So Christ's blood, willingly poured out, cements the new bond between God and man. And so what you want to see here is that blood or life ties us all together. Everything that lives contains blood, and blood carries the essence of that spirit that, that's, that's the manifestation, right? That's the embodiment, the incarnation of spirit on, on, on earth or, or in matter. And that ties all living things together. It ties all life together. It makes life somehow one. It makes spirit somehow one. And that's how religious people understand God. God is one. He goes on, he says, In the Roman Catholic Mass, the individual cements his personal relation to God. He becomes psychologically identified with all other communicants as part of the mystical body of Christ. Christ's offering his blood as a nourishing drink is an expression of the positive mother archetype, or rather, that component of the self. So this is interesting, right? God is one, as we just said. And that, that, that oneness ties us all together, one in spirit, one in God. You know, the, the same blood flowing through our, our veins, the same life, you know, that we're borrowed from our ancestors that, that, that continually runs through creation. It's one thing. And in the Roman Catholic Mass, by drinking the blood of Christ, we become one in the mystical body of Christ. That's, that's the church. We become one in the mystical body of Christ. That blood unites us and, and allows us to recognize that we are one. right? One in the mystical body. Lastly, he says, according to ancient physiology, the female could turn blood into milk and the male could turn it into semen. Blood, milk, and semen were variations of the same essential substance. Thus, we arrive at the Stoic concept of the Logos Spermaticos, the creative impregnating word corresponding to the creative function of the word in John 1. Now, right, remember that's, that's you know, in the beginning was the word. In John 1, 3, it says, all things were made through him. All things were made through the Logos, right? This is the Logos Spermaticos, the one thing that can become the many, right? The one thing, the Spirit of God, that in our human manifestation can be transformed into milk, right? The nourishing substance of that allows human life to flourish, or semen, the seed of human life. It all rolls back to the, to the Spirit of God, essentially. The same thing that's in our blood that causes us to be alive, that represents the incarnation that we are. And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call Christ and Dionysus, blood and wine. So remember, blood carries the creative force, the life force, the Spirit of God. Christ and Dionysus are often associated with one another, there were mystery religions in ancient times that surrounded both Christ and Dionysus. They had some significant overlap in the images uh, and stories and rituals that surrounded uh, both. So let's see what Edinger has to say. He says, Another important line of symbolic connection links the blood of Christ with the grape and wine of Dionysus. And John, Christ says of himself, I am the true vine. 
So I don't know what you already know of Dionysus. We're going to talk a little bit about that here to fill you in. But if you don't know, Dionysus was the god of the vine. He was, in ancient Greece, he was the god of intoxication. He was the god that bridges the conscious world, mortal world, to the unconscious divine world. He allows a human being to be possessed by a spirit. That's why we call alcohol spirits, by the way. It allows human beings to be possessed by a spirit and connects us and bridges us to this new uh, realm of experience, this this, we can share or participate in this divine unconscious experience that we understand today as intoxication, an altered state of consciousness. Edinger says, The miracle at Cana, which transformed water into wine, established Christ as the winemaker. Jung says, quote, The wine miracle at Cana was the same as the miracle in the temple of Dionysus. See, Dionysus can bring inspiration, ecstasy, and transformation of consciousness, right? Transformation of consciousness, an altered state of consciousness. People don't know this, but in, in the biblical corpus, in, in the New Testament, when it talks about being born again, the Greek word that's used is metanoia. Metanoia means a transformation of consciousness. Isn't that interesting? To be born again is to have a transformation of consciousness. Edinger says, The wine of Dionysus shares with the blood of Christ the qualities of reconciliation and communion. Right? It bridges the, the distance between the mortal and the divine. It brings them together. That's communion. Nietzsche described the Dionysian principle. So the great philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said about the Dionysian way of life. He said, the slave is free. All the hostile barriers between man and man are broken. Each one feels himself not only united, reconciled, and fused with his neighbor, but as one with him, as if the veil of Maya had been torn aside and were now merely fluttering in tatters before the mysterious primordial unity. Man, oh man, I got to read me some Nietzsche. Fuck, that's good. But you see what he's saying. He's saying that the Dionysian spirit breaks down the barriers between man and man. It makes us feel united, reconciled, fused together. It's as though the veil of Maya has been torn. You know, we can see past the illusion of our perception to see whatever's really there. And that is the mysterious primordial unity, the Ouroboros, God itself, and amazing. He said, according to Plutarch, the ancient Egyptian priests did not drink wine, thinking it to be the blood of those who had fallen and commingled with the earth. This is the reason why drunkenness drives men out of their senses and crazes them, as they are then filled with the blood of their forebears. This idea is most interestingly uh, psychologically, as a description of the effects of an influx of the collective unconscious, as one is filled with the blood of his forebears. So there's a connection here between between receiving energy or receiving um, contents, whatever that means, from the unconscious. Right? You're receiving a gift from God, a message from God in religious terms. And that's like 
being filled with the blood of your of your ancestors. Right? The Spirit of God is what connects you to your ancestors. It's what connects you to the beginning of time. You get a little injection of that. You know, how'd that be? So I want to talk about this for a second because there's something interesting here. The ancient Egyptian priests didn't drink wine. Why? Because they thought that the juice of the grapes was sort of like a concentrated um, magic from the blood of fallen human beings that were soaked into the earth, picked up by the plants, turned into the grapes. And if you, if you, if you drink that wine made from those grapes, you're going to go mad. You're going to be possessed by the spirit uh, that existed here in the blood of the fallen that are soaked into the earth. And the reason I think this is so interesting, there was a famous book written by John Marco Allegro. Uh, people who listen to the podcast know about it already. If you listen to Joe Rogan, you know about it already. The book is called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. We did a fantastic episode on it in season one. It's by far the most popular episode we've done. And in that book, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, John Marco Allegro talks about how the ancient people believed that the storm and the rain... Um, was the semen of God. It was like this creative, um, generative substance, manna from heaven that falls down to the earth and it gets soaked into the soil. The people who lived in the arid and semi-arid areas in the Middle East that we're talking about would have seen the earth just soak up that water. It just disappears immediately. And then in the morning... They go out and see mushrooms sprouted up all over the place, like they just erected, uh, erupted out of the ground overnight, you know, and they grow fast, and it's kind of amazing. And they saw this, right, as, as this sperm of God falling down into the earth, the earth being, of course, Mother Earth, the womb, soaking it, soaking it down, concentrating this divine magic from God, and then the mushrooms grow up, and they contain that magic, Right? Then you eat the mushroom, the magic mushroom, and you have an altered state of consciousness. You have a psychedelic experience. You have a divine experience. You bridge the material world to the divine one. And for a moment, you get to be there. And you see that, right? That same element in the ancient Egyptian priests' um, rejection of, of wine. Edinger says, Christ is both God and man both self and ego. Now, he's done this before, but I want, to, I want to focus on this for a second. God and man are religious words that are equivalent to the psychological terms self and ego. God is self, man is ego. God is numinous, um, man is material. Right? God is spirit, man is matter. That's the dichotomy that, that we're seeing, and you can see it from a philosophical lens, from a religious lens, from a psychological lens. The fact that it's consistent and true across those domains makes it more compelling. He says, in terms of the sacrificial rite, Christ is both the sacrificing priest and the sacrificial victim. Right? In a Dionysian context, he's both the intoxicant and the intoxicated. Both action and acted upon. Both creator and creation simultaneously. And you can see that, of course, in the image of Jesus, the God-man, creator and creation simultaneously. Carl Jung said, in the age-old image of the Ouroboros, 
lies the thought of devouring oneself and turning oneself into a circulatory process. This feedback process is at the same time a symbol of immortality. It symbolizes the one who proceeds from the clash of opposites. Fuck, I don't know where this quote is from. i got to find that, that particular young book. This is dynamite to me. and I'll, I'll explain to you why. First of all, he talks about the Ouroboros, the age-old image of the Ouroboros. Um, just to clarify, for those people who maybe this is the first time you've heard of the Two Tunks podcast, what is the Ouroboros? It's the symbol of God that is maybe the most ancient and universal symbol of God that we know about. It's a symbol that represents the self-created uh, the yin-yang is a good example, but the one that's usually talked about is the symbol of a serpent swallowing its tail. It's a circle. It represents this infinite process, and it's born from its own mouth, right? It's, it's self-created, and it represents the union of opposites. So in ancient times, there, the, the, the original Godhead was a unity, Right, a unity of two opposing forces, the feminine and the masculine, yin and yang, heaven and earth, whatever, however you want to frame it. And those gods were originally one until they were separated. Right? In, in ancient Mesopotamia, it was um, Apsu and Tiamat. They were once together until they were separated. That sort of a thing. So the Ouroboros is that oneness. And he talks about this self-created image being a circulatory process or a feedback process, something that feeds back on itself. And that's fascinating to me. The reason it's fascinating is because when you have altered states of consciousness, um, fractal images are a common phenomenon. Fractal images, like shapes within shapes within shapes forever, Shapes transforming constantly. These sorts of things. The Mandelbrot set is something worth, worth Googling. A fractal image. Um, that's something that is at the root of nature. Scientists have figured out that when you look at the growth of plants, the progress of building of shells, all these natural processes like trying to simulate a mountain in a computer that looks realistic, all of these things require fractal mathematics fractal mathematics that we see at the heart of nature is created through feedback. And if you look at the Mandelbrot set, if you do a quick Google, you'll find that feedback is created when in the mathematical equation you have one function that's mirrored on both sides. It feeds back on itself in, a, in an endless loop. And you can see that when you look at in a mirror with a mirror behind you. You can see that when you're, you know, talking into a microphone and there's another microphone, you know, nearby and you get that echo. You can see that process of feedback everywhere all the time. Truth is, that is fundamental to nature. We don't understand it, but we know that it is true. And what Jung is saying is this Ouroboros, this idea that, that rests at the beginning of our religious stories and symbolizes the beginning of the cosmos, of reality, that that is a process of feedback. It also is a symbol of immortality, right? Feedback doesn't stop. That process doesn't stop. It's eternal. If you're standing and looking in a mirror with a mirror behind you, you're going to see an endless reflection of you. It doesn't stop, ever. It goes on and on and on and on and on. It's, it's eternal and immortal. It symbolizes the one 
who proceeds from a clash of opposites. That's God, right? The one. And that brings me to the next section, which is called the Philosopher's Stone. So I want to try to make some sense for myself and for you as to why alchemy plays into this. It's kind of been a mystery to me, but it's starting to make sense. So let's, let's dive in. Edinger says, The alchemists were looking for a spiritual content in a chemical procedure. They were looking for the philosopher's stone. According to the alchemical view, metals went through a natural process of, of growth. Base metals, such as lead, would mature and grow into the noble metals, gold and silver. The alchemists thought they could hasten that natural process. This idea is an obvious projection onto matter of the fact that psychological growth is fostered by working on psychic contents. Right? So what he's saying is this idea that you can take base metals and do something to it to make it gold, to purify it and make, and make it perfect, that that was a psychological projection. We were pretending we could do that to matter because we know unconsciously that we can do that and we do do that to ourselves, to our own psyche, right? We work on it, we meditate, we experience, we, we make mistakes, we develop, we grow, we mature, we build on our values and all these sorts of things. And what we're doing is transforming our psyche. Maybe, maybe you could say we're purifying it. Maybe you could say we're turning our, a base ego into something pure, something like gold, something like the self, the fully integrated personality, as Jung would say. Edinger goes on, gold and silver were considered noble because they were not subject to rust or corrosion. Thus, they carried the qualities of unchanging consistency and eternity. Similarly, the self conveys to the ego the characteristic of reliable stability. So this, this end state, this perfect, pure, noble state, this represents the self, the God part, the potential for ourselves, but also the place where we where we originated. So this is an idea of the impure becoming pure, the ego or man being perfected into the self or, or into God. He goes on, he says, the ascending and descending angels upon Jacob's ladder in the book of Genesis correspond to the alchemical procedure of sublimatio and coagulatio. Sublimatio psychologically is the process of raising personal experiences to a level of universal truth. Right? So this is think about this from a Jungian perspective. I have an experience, just one individual experience. Maybe it's an experience of overcoming some obstacle and, and triumphing, whatever that might be. And I can look around and see that happening in other people and other circumstances. It's not exactly the same as mine, but I can see versions of it. And then I realize all of these individual versions of this, of this experience of struggling and pushing through and persevering, that this is actually all different examples of some abstracted experience, the experience of triumph and overcoming, you know? So you're taking this personal experience and realizing that it is some, so some sort of universal truth, some universal experience, some archetypal experience. And raising the personal to the universal 
is something like bringing the earth to heaven, right? Bringing the earth to heaven. That's sublimatio. Coagluatio is the concretization or personal realization of an archetypal image. So this is the opposite. This is bringing heaven to earth. The realization of an archetypal image, the concretization of an archetypal image, that is like the embodiment or the incarnation of a spirit. It brings the heaven to the earth. So sublimatio, coagulatio, that's bringing the earth to heaven, bringing the heaven to earth, and the back and forth, right? This is the image of the angels coming up and down, the ladder of heaven, right? Heaven to earth. He says, for the angels to be visible, right? For, for Jacob to have seen the, this, this vision of the angels climbing up and down. The personal ego world and the archetypal psyche Right, the the material world and the and the um, and God, let's say, are seen as interpenetrating. There isn't a there isn't a, a a barrier between the mortal world and the divine. They interpenetrate each other. Young suggests that Jacob's stone, which marks the place where upper and lower unite, is equivalent to the philosopher's stone. So what the hell is the Philosopher's Stone? The Philosopher's Stone is a union of two contrary entities, a hot, masculine, solar part and a cold, feminine, lunar part. It's just the combination, the union of opposites, the Ouroboros, like we talked about. The Philosopher's Stone is another image for the union of opposites. This corresponds to what Jung has demonstrated so comprehensively that the self is experienced and symbolized as a union of opposites. See how Jung makes the connection, makes the association of the Ouroboros to the self, to this, from this mythological idea of the Ouroboros to the psychological idea of the self. And the self is the conscious and the unconscious together, interpenetrating as a unity. And that's what we are, even if we don't understand that. We are partially conscious and partially unconscious. There, there are all sorts of things happening within me and around me that I'm unconscious of, yet it's still a part of me and a part of the, the, my existence, right? Conscious and unconscious. He says the Philosopher's Stone is often described as a conjunctio of soul and luna, right? That is a union of sun and moon. A union of opposites. The paradoxical nature of the stone corresponds to the paradoxical nature of the psyche itself. So why is the psyche a paradox? Well, we have this unconscious part, and we have this conscious part. We don't seem to have any connection to the unconscious part. We don't know what it is because we're not conscious of it. It's invisible. It's intangible. To us, it's influencing us and um, persuading us, motivating us, all kinds of things. And we don't know how or why. We're not aware of it. We don't know what it is. It's a great mystery. And yet, it's part of the thing that we are. The self. We know that. We know we have an unconscious component to our, to our existence. And that's why it's a paradox. It both is and isn't us. He says, in alchemy, a white dove is a symbol 
for Mercurius. Mercurius is a Latinization of the Greek god Mercury. Who was Mercury? He was the messenger of the gods, right? He would take a, a message from Zeus down to, to earth and communicate it to whoever it needs to be communicated to. He was the messenger of gods, wings on his hat, wings on his heels, flying like, like the angels on Jacob's ladder, back and forth between the, the divine and the mortal realm. He's that which connects the divine and the mortal realm. The spirit of Mercury, the messenger of God. His symbol was a white dove. And Edinger points out that is also a symbol for the Holy Ghost, right? When Jesus is baptized and he's pulled up from the water, a dove descends upon him and he hears the voice of God. The dove represents the Holy Ghost, the Logos, the Spirit of God. See, that is the messenger. That's what connects God and man, the divine and the, and the material world. The Logos, the Spirit that, that embodies, that is incarnated in the world. The Logos is the divine spirit within matter, and it connects the divine and the material. And it's associated with consciousness, with spirit, with life. He goes on, he says, Incarnation is an aspect of coagulatio. The alchemists were concerned with how, co how to coagulate or fix the elusive mercurial spirit one way represented pictorially was to transfix the mercurial serpent to a tree or nail it to a cross, just as was done to Christ. So here's the idea. The Spirit of God, the Logos, that's what was breathed into man that, that allows Adam to become a living being. That mercurial spirit, that Logos, has to be fixed to something. It has to, has to go into something to bring it to life. And how and what the alchemists were trying to do is to figure out how we can get a hold of the spirit and make it do our bidding. That's what we want. That's what we were trying to do to speed up the process of turning lead into gold. That we could somehow harness the spirit of God and make it do what we want it to do. They wanted to coagulate, to push together spirit and matter and to be able to control it. And the way that they symbolized this was to nail a serpent to a tree, to make it stay, to fix it to something material, or to nail it to a cross. And the fact that that image comes from Christianity, it makes you, un, it ma it makes you recognize the meaning behind this alchemical symbol in a way that you could not otherwise imagine. And this is what the depth psychologists do so well. This is what Jung calls synchronicity. It's when you have something appearing in one domain, right? The philosophical, another, the religious, another, the psychological. And when they all line up, that's synchronicity. That's, that's pointing to something deeply, deeply true. What that is, I don't know. All of these examples may be allegories, analogies, something, you know, parables, basically. We have to figure out the meaning. They're all lining up, but what does that mean? It points to a deep truth. It doesn't necessarily disclose a deep truth. It points to it. So you still, there's still some work to be done to, to understand it, to make it conscious within yourself. And that is, of course, what individuation is all about, to make the unconscious conscious, to make God 
real, actualized, to make the potential actual. That would be a good way of saying it. He goes on, he says, the philosopher's stone is equivalent to the all-seeing eye of God. That which sees, right? And that, that which sees is consciousness. So you can see here how consciousness is associated with sight and vision and light, those sorts of things symbolically. The philosopher's stone is the all-seeing eye, so it's also associated with consciousness. He says, in the fourth vision of Zechariah, Zechariah sees a stone with seven eyes upon it. An angel tells him, these seven are the eyes of Yahweh. They cover the whole world. So this is the idea that God is always watching. God knows, knows the deepest secret secrets of your soul. Um, you know, those are, the, those are things you can't hide from. Like when you try to hide from those things, psychologically we would say we push them down, we make them unconscious. Well, making the, them unconscious is like putting them right in, in front of the face of God. God represents, uh, is, is represented by that unconscious part of ourselves. So to, so to, to hide something from ourselves is to make it unconscious and simultaneously to hold it right up in front of God. This is what I'm trying to hide from, and I'm putting it right in the face of the Creator. You know, is that what you were trying to do? So the stone with seven eyes on it that sees the world, it reminds you of a god from ancient Mesopotamia, Marduk, who was, the, who was born from the Ouroboric creators, Tiamat and Apsu. Marduk, represents, he's the god of consciousness. He has eyes all around his head. He sees everything. Edinger says, the eye of God was a prominent image in ancient Egyptian religion, the all-seeing eye of Horus, exactly like the idea of Marduk. Since nothing can be hidden from the philosopher's stone or the eye of God, the stone is a dangerous threat to anyone who's trying to evade full self-awareness. The stone can see all because it symbolizes the complete integrated personality which will have no hidden split-off aspects. Right? The conscious and the unconscious together. Nothing's hidden from that. That's the whole kit and caboodle. That's everything. He says, The image of the eye of God suggests a unified source of consciousness within the unconscious. A unified source of consciousness within the unconscious. The unconscious is the great primordial God that gives birth to all of the, all of the egos that exist, you and I and, every, and everyone else. So that unified source of all these egos, the thing giving birth to all the egos, is the unconscious. It's the God part of, of our personality, of our psyche. He says, to convey a spirit into an image must refer to the capacity of the unconscious to express an undifferentiated affect in some specific fantasy image. So what the hell does that mean? So to convey a spirit into an image, right? this is the alchemical idea of nailing the serpent to the tree or to the cross, the idea of taking the spirit of God and putting it into matter, this incarnation motif, to convey a spirit into an image. right? God creates the image of Adam and clay, breathes life into it. How do we take a spirit and put it into an image? The unconscious can, can do that. He says this must refer to the capacity of the unconscious to express an undifferentiated affect. So what is affect? Affect is emotion, motivation. It's a force. It's a spirit, something like that. 
Something that's undifferentiated, though, means something that hasn't yet become a specific thing. It's still part of that um, amorphous blob, that unity, that oneness behind everything. It's undifferentiated, unspecified. What does that mean? To express an undefined thing. It's like meaning with no form. He says, to bring an emerging unconscious content into consciousness, a spirit must be caught in some discernible form in order to become a content of consciousness. This is the alchemical operation of coaglatio. It is the philosopher's stone which performs the transformation of spirit into image. Right? It's the logos, or consciousness, which transforms the spirit into image. In other words, the image-making power of the psyche derives from its transpersonal center, the self. So the logos transforms spirit into image. I want to stop on that for a second because philosophers of mind, people like David Chalmers, um, he wrote a fantastic book called The Conscious Mind. Uh, I strongly encourage people to read it if you're interested. But he, he made clear to me for the first time this idea of qualia. And he uses color as an example. Um, the idea here is that color doesn't exist in the physical world. Color. Now you could say the wavelengths of light that were associated with color, that those things exist as physical things. They do. That they're objects that we see as colorful. They have some uh, physical existence. Of course they do. But our experience of color seeing green, what it's like to see green, doesn't exist in the world. It exists in our consciousness somehow. It, it, our consciousness overlays it onto the world so that we experience it. But it, color, doesn't exist out here. It doesn't. There's something about our consciousness that takes this reflection of light in certain wavelengths and gives us this experience. So consciousness puts some level of reality over top of what's really there. And qualia is not limited to color. It's, any, it's anything that defines the quality of something. So the way it sounds, the way it tastes, you know, all these sorts of things are qualia. But also form is qualia. How things appear to be distinct from other things, where their boundaries are, you know, what they're like as objects. Even that form is qualia. It's something that our consciousness imposes on the world, on whatever is behind, you know, the matrix, whatever that is. So when Edinger says that the logos performs this transformation of spirit into an image, right, that's consciousness responsible for the image. Chalmers could not agree more. Form is qualia. Form is imposed on reality by consciousness. Now, the great question that this evokes is, well, what is behind perception? If what we're seeing isn't the thing that's really behind perception, what is that thing? See, that's the unity. That's the great mystery. The last, the last sentence is also interesting. He says, in other words, the image-making power of the psyche derives from its transpersonal center, the self. The image-making power of the psyche derives from God. Now, when, when we're dreaming and we have a dream world, Bernardo Castro talks about this in a great, great way. When you're having a dream and you have no idea during the dream that you're dreaming, 
you have all of the images. You have a world. You have space and time. You have interaction, cause and effect. You have all kinds of things going on in your dream. It all seems, you know, veridical and coherent and everything else while you're dreaming. And what we have to understand is it's our mind is fully capable of producing all of those things that we associate with reality while we're awake. People, distinction, images, space, time, motion, cause and effect. Our minds give us a completely flushed out, fleshed out experience of a world that doesn't exist. Now, if our psyche can do that while we're dreaming, and we're none the wiser, our egos are none the wiser, how can we say that all form, all qualia, how can we say that our experience while we're awake isn't exactly the same? The psyche is creating all of those images. The image-making power of the psyche. Is it responsible for the images I'm seeing right now? I'm not dreaming. I'm conscious. I'm awake. I feel like there's a table here and a computer and I'm talking to other people and all this sort of thing. But are those images produced by psyche? Not mine specifically, but psyche you know, as such. Psyche as God itself, the archetypal psyche, as Jung would say. The collective unconscious. And that would make sense if, if physical reality and conscious experience are one thing. One thing that, that, that is the consequence or the goal of God to experience itself. Then, of course, you can understand how if God is psyche, it can create images to inhabit, can create images that it can embody so that it can have a dialogue with itself, so that it can experience itself. Is that what reality is? I think there's a good goddamn argument for it. And that brings me to the last section which I'm going to call the first thing. The last section will be called the first thing. All right, so one of the founders of the Royal Society of England was a scientist and an alchemist, like Isaac Newton, by the way. This guy's name was Elias Ashmole. And he described the Philosopher's Stone. Remember, he was an alchemist. He called it the prima materia, the prime material, the original substance, right? The prima materia. He basically said that in the beginning of the world, prior to creation, there was only the prima materia, which was without form, structure, or specific content. In the beginning was only the prima materia. It was without form. Does that sound familiar to anybody? In the Bible, it says in the beginning was the deep, and it was without form and void. You remember that? Ashmole, Ashmole goes on, he says, All was potential, nothing actual. In the act of creation, the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, were separated out from the prima materia. The cross of the four elements had been imposed on the prima materia, giving it order and bringing cosmos out of chaos. So you've got the prima materia, Okay, and it's separated out into these four elements. 
you have a reflection here of the creation in Genesis, which is everything is being separated out, right? Um, light from darkness, heaven from earth, man from woman, everything is separated into being. And this is what you have in, in uh, this alchemical idea. The original unity, the prima materia, is separated into these four components. And in doing so, the, he says the cross, right, of the four components, that is a form that is now imposed on the oneness, right? The one has been divided into four. Now it has form, and as soon as you have given it form, he said, you've, you've brought cosmos out of chaos. You've given form to the spirit. You've given form to the spirit. That's, that is a, an image of incarnation. And he says these ideas have many parallels in the, in the process of psychological development, but particularly the idea of four. Right? He says four as a symbol of wholeness relates to the fourfold mandala image, which is an image of the self. He says descriptions of the prima materia emphasize its ubiquity and multiplicity. It is said to have as many names as there are things. In spite of its diverse manifestations, it is essentially a unity. Right? This is the one that is also many. It is the paradox. The one, the self, that is also many egos. The one God that is also many material beings made manifest. In psychological terms, the theme of unity and multiplicity involves the problem of integrating the conflicting fragments of one's own personality. This is the essence of the psychotherapeutic process. The goal of this process is to experience oneself as one. The impetus seems to derive from the unity that was there all the time. So in, in psychotherapy, we're trying to integrate these parts of our personality that have gotten out of hand, that have gotten too far away from us. Jung would call that the shadow or the anima. We want to we pick those things that we're repressing, that we're trying to pretend are not, aren't a part of us. We want to gather them together, right? Coagulatio. We want to gather them together and bring them back into ourselves. And the thing that's out there, that's out, that's apart from ourselves, is the unconscious. It's God. We want to find that thing, recognize it, and integrate it back into ourselves so we can become whole again. So our psyche can become whole again, that we can become one. He says, knowledge of the archetypal psyche derives from inner subjective experience, which are scarcely communicable. The Philosopher's Stone is a symbol for the reality of the psyche. There is a healing power in the images that cluster around this symbol. It has a constructive and integrating effect. It is truly a pearl of great price. And that brings me to my conclusion. What Edinger has been speaking to through the unconscious manifestations found in religion and even alchemy is a projection, you know, a psychic projection onto the physical world of the psychological process of individuation. Individuation is seen as the process each of us begins in life, but which few follow sufficiently. This process is the Herculean effort of separating oneself out from the unconscious unity from which everything comes. The separation is a kind of act of creation, identical in form to the creation account of Genesis, which illustrates creation by separation. 
separation of light from darkness, heaven from earth, Eve from Adam's rib. This is the creation of the ego, that which we call ourself. And in an ouroboric self-creation, we are, of course, the primordial unconscious unity that gave us birth and the ego that was birthed. So, like God in our religious stories, we are creator and creation. Now, this critical first hurdle in the process of, indi of individuation does something else. With the birth of the ego, we not only separate ourselves from our origin, but in so doing, give ourselves a subjective perspective from which to experience. We call this consciousness. And as a conscious subject, we now have the ability to experience our origin. We have the sufficient separation to now experience our origin as something other, as something outside of ourselves, as something unconscious. And we call that thing God. And this is a strange kind of self-experience. We commune with the material cosmos and elicit inner spiritual experiences, which seem to be external to us, but which in reality are only external to our ego. What we are really experiencing is fundamental reality, the unconscious origin from which all things emerge. It is our self as well as our parents, symbolically speaking, father and son, like Christ Jesus. Now we can see the symbolic meaning of the God-man and the true mystery of our own being. We have blood flowing through our bodies. Blood which carries the mercurial spirit of life, the logos, the spirit of God itself. It is this that animates the world of images and egos that we call reality. It is this which is incarnated, which is made flesh. And finally, we arrive at the key symbol, dead, lifeless matter, or the endless deep, being animated and incarnated. God made flesh. The unconscious made conscious. Spirit made matter. This is the alchemical prima materia, the philosopher's stone, and the image of Christ. It is the mercurial spirit and Jacob's ladder which ties together heaven and earth, the messenger of God which allows God and matter to come together, to touch you know, like Michelangelo's creation of Adam. We reach out to God and God to us. We strive to touch, to unite, to reunite. And this is the climax and purpose of individuation. To bring back together what creation had separated. To restore original wholeness to God. Psychologically speaking, this is the integration of the unconscious into consciousness to unite the self with the ego, God with man, and thereby answering the greatest of all mysteries. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work. 
thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>